Good evening. It's seven o'clock and time now for In Context with Patrick Boynes. Well, good evening. It's great to have you with us this uh, Monday evening and welcome once again to In Context on truthfm.uk. This is the radio show where we look at a passage of scripture and where we'll always aim to look at things within their context. You can find us here on internet radio by going to truthfm.uk or on the truth.fm app or maybe you're listening to this on a podcast well however you got here it's jolly good to have you with us once more My name is Patrick. I am a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. He is my teacher, and uh, I'm learning to follow him throughout life's journey. And as we've said before, on a Monday evening, we are on a journey traveling through the writings of Luke. Now, last time we were together, and I must say, at least as far as my week has gone, I feel like my feet haven't touched the ground since we were last together when we began looking at the second of Luke's nativity narratives, which records the circumstances of the birth of Jesus, along with the visit of the shepherds, you may recall. Well, the whole episode was truly remarkable, and though often at variance with so many of the dramatizations we might have seen over the years, it was an event which placed the Saviour of mankind, who is Christ the Lord, very much at the heart of the human experience. Well, with no more ado, Luke concludes the scene of the birth by telling us that at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel to Mary before he was conceived in her womb. Well, the next scene presented by Luke occurs nearly six weeks later. We find ourselves in the capital city of Jerusalem, and we're back at the temple, where a little more than a year earlier the priest, Zechariah, had been struck dumb following the appearance of the angel announcing the birth of John. Well, the time had come now for sacrifices to be offered by the parents of this newborn child whom they had 
named Jesus, yeah, the time had come for sacrifices to be offered which were associated with the purification of the mother following the birth of the child, and you could read about these in chapter 12 of the book of Leviticus, one of the books of Torah towards the beginning of the Old Testament, but it was a, a pretty standard procedure. Well, Joseph and Mary had brought the baby Jesus to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Well, a good deal could be said of this and of the need to bring the child to the temple in person, but it seems that one what is happening here is perhaps beyond the simple requirements of the law with regards to firstborn males. What is happening here is perhaps more like a, um, a special presentation to God, somewhat like the presentation of Samuel, who over a thousand years earlier was brought to the house of the Lord to be given to him for service. But whatever significance we may attach to this presentation of Jesus at the temple. We can be sure that it was made in the context of faithful parental obedience to the law of the Lord. And it is here that we meet Simeon, a truly devoted servant of the Lord, now ready to be dismissed in peace according to God's word. Listen to what Luke tells us. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marvelled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. 
and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We know so very little about this Simeon, but the little we do know adds to the overwhelming Jewish context of this scene. From the nature of the promise, you know, revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, and by his expression of praise that God was letting your servant depart in peace. We, we, we generally assume that he was an elderly man, although we're not actually told how old he was. Some have suggested that Simeon was a priest, but there's no clear evidence to support this. The fact that Luke does not introduce him in the way that he typically identifies others we meet, such as Zechariah, a priest, or Anna, a prophetess, whom we will meet in a few minutes, suggests that he probably wasn't. But either way, it likely makes little difference to our understanding of his words. But I wonder whether Simeon had witnessed the rather unusual events that had taken place at the temple just over a year earlier. Luke had told us that once Zechariah the priest had received back his voice uh, praising God that these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. The thing is that there at the temple in Jerusalem and through all the hill country of Judea people were talking. And um, it, it would have been the kind of things that people would have, you know, discussed in the streets from home to home and in the, in the marketplaces. And well, many of the Jews were aware that something was afoot, something big was about to take place, and some, such as Simeon were awaiting the fulfilment of the hope of all hopes, the consolation of Israel. So Simeon's involvement here is as one who represents the best of Israel, the best of expectant Israel, as one writer put it, a role that he shares very shortly with Anna, who was to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. But before we meet Anna, what should we make of this remarkable hymn or song of praise and the blessing and prophecy directed towards the parents of this remarkable child. 
The first part, the, uh, the, the hymn or song of praise, is particularly well known, though generally not within its context. Known as the Nunc Dimittis, a title taken from the, the Latin translation of the opening words, I remember reciting this every Sunday evening for a couple of years in my early teenage uh, experience, for reasons which are irrelevant, um, if not ridiculous. My parents had decided to, I think the phrase is, move to a different church, and we began attending quite regularly the Evensong at the local parish church. It was a fairly high church, as I recall, so the ritual was reasonably well performed and included a weekly recitation of this passage known as the Nunc Dimittis and it went something like this. Actually, I don't remember it being quite so melodic, but I do remember thinking that it had something or other to do with going to bed at night. You know, the fact that we sang this in the evening and it had to do with departing in peace, you know, really did sound rather like retiring for the evening. I mean, the thing is, I really didn't have a clue, and I certainly didn't know that in its context, it is one of the most beautiful and rich poetic passages in the whole of Scripture. One writer speaks of its suppressed rapture and vivid intensity in which it equals the most beautiful of the psalms. But unlike the two preceding hymns, which we've already looked at, at least briefly in previous weeks, uh, you know, the, the, the Song of Mary or the Magnificat and the, the Hymn of Zechariah or the the Benedictus, in both of which the, the scriptural allusions are primarily taken from the book of Psalms, well, unlike these two preceding hymns, the Nunc Dimittis relies heavily on allusions to the book of the prophet Isaiah. 
And if we had an awful lot more time, we would look into that in, uh, in some detail. But as we are here this evening, Simeon not only states his motive for praising God, you know, that his eyes have seen the salvation of God, but he also interprets what God has accomplished for the whole of mankind, both Jew and Gentile alike. And in this sense, the hymn or song of praise interprets the moment of encounter in the temple in a way that looks beyond the encounter itself to, to the larger meaning of the fulfillment of God's purpose in Jesus for us all. Well, there's so much to be said of this passage. The, the term that uh, Simeon uses to address God, one that refers to him as an, the absolute master, uh, as if he, Simeon, the slave, is finally to be released from the ordeals of this life. He speaks of having seen God's salvation, which he has prepared in the presence of all peoples. This is the history of Israel. This is the history of God working through his people in the midst of the nations. God hasn't acted in secret, but has always had in mind the blessing of all peoples through the descendants of Abraham. You remember he said to him that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Nothing has been done behind closed doors, as it were. And isn't that a beautiful phrase when he says, My eyes have seen your salvation. Looking into the eyes of this little baby, Simeon sees the hope of mankind. He sees Jesus, the, the Lord's salvation, the one who has come to seek and to save the lost. And, and, and what about us? Have we seen the light of God's revelation? Are we allowing God to flood our lives with the light of his word day by day? For this salvation which he has prepared is to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And this is the first mention of hope for Gentiles in the writings of Luke, and one that is made, perhaps somewhat ironically, in the very heart of the capital city, in the temple it's of Jerusalem itself. But Simeon was not the only one the new parents would meet that day in the temple. Luke continues, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. 
She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The inclusion here of Anna, the elderly prophetess, is just one of many instances in Luke's writings where the, the marginalised outcasts of society are favoured by God. Now, whether or not Simeon himself, the one with whom she is paired, if you like, fits this category is, is debatable. We know so little of him but we've already seen this um uh, this this favoring by god as it were of those who are marginalized uh, in his choice of mary as the the young woman through whom his son will enter the world and his uh, in his announcement to to mere shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. And of course we've seen it in both Mary and Joseph uh, through their, the, the, the offering that they made at the temple. And since this offering is the one usually made by those who are poor, again Jesus is identified with the very people that he reached out to save. And it is often the women who receive special treatment. We'll see a lot more of this as we continue to work through these writings. Uh, but the women who, you know, though on the, 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 the fringes of first century society, they're at the centre of Luke's story. But it's at this point that Luke wraps up the nativity narrative and he takes us back up north. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favour of God was upon him. There's no mention by Luke of any diversion along the way, but uh, we have here another conclusion, similar to that which he had given to John's nativity at the close of the first chapter. Uh, of uh, of Luke. Uh, here we read that the favour of God was upon 
Jesus, the favour of God. The word used there is often translated as grace. The grace of God was upon him. Well, for now the father would look on as his son grew to manhood under the watchful eyes of his parents, though just how watchful may remain to be seen. And that's the sound of the mission bell, meaning it's our mission segment of the week. Time to consider what implications for mission there might be in the passage we're looking into uh, each Monday evening. And, and as I was thinking of this, I couldn't help but notice the role, the prominent role that the Holy Spirit is playing here in this incident involving Simeon. Yes, the Spirit of God plays a prominent role in the, the missiological thinking of Luke. And though this is maybe particularly evident in his second volume, the Book of Acts, his gospel account contains almost as many references to the Spirit as do the other synoptics combined. The Spirit becomes the, the impetus, the, the guiding force of mission, a concept which is clearly seen in the book of Acts, where the Spirit of God sets apart and directs those who are proclaiming the message of salvation. In Acts, uh, you may recall, if you've read through uh, Luke volume 2, in Acts it is the Spirit of God who instructs Philip's to, to join the Ethiopian's chariot. It's the Spirit who told Peter to go to the home of Cornelius. Barnabas and Saul were set apart by the Holy Spirit for the work to which God called them, and then sent out by the Holy Spirit on their first preaching tour. On Paul's second tour, he and his companions were guided through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then once again, uh, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. But we begin to digress. In his Gospel, Luke tells us that after returning from the Jordan, Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. He returns filled with the power of the Spirit, where he began to then teach in their synagogues. And it was whilst he was in the synagogue at Nazareth, we'll come to this in a few weeks, I dare say, Lord willing, it was whilst in the synagogue at Nazareth that he stood up to read from the prophet Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And all of these texts are important in understanding the role of the Spirit of God in the ongoing mission of both Jesus and his people. 
But there's also a significant number of references to the Spirit in the infancy narratives of Luke's Gospel, as we've already seen. As a loving father prepares for the arrival of a first child, so the God of heaven and earth was creating the perfect conditions for the birth of his son. And this Spirit-led activity is most evident in this passage describing the scene in which Simeon comes into the temple and takes the child in his arms. When, when Simeon, whom the, uh, upon whom the Holy Spirit rested, entered the temple in Jerusalem, he was guided by the Spirit to find fulfillment of a promise that had only been revealed to him by the Spirit. To Simeon, the promise was that he wouldn't see death before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. And the fulfillment was evident by his seeing and holding the child. The praise is heard in the words of his nunc dimittis, in which he declares he's ready to be dismissed. His duty is done. The great day has come. He holds in his hands the very means of God's salvation. And in a very real sense, he already experiences the messianic glory. So, what about us? In what way do we understand the Spirit of Jesus to be working within us and through us and around us? Do we see mission as simply something which we are to accomplish, or do we see it as being a full participation in the work and purpose of of uh, of of God in which he is every bit as active as we are, although in truth of course he's always far more active than we could ever be, and in ways in which we can only begin to imagine. And knowing this, might we not more readily recognise his activity, even anticipate his activity, and pray that his activity by his Spirit might always precede and govern whatever plans or activities we might offer in our service to God? Well, as we come to the end of this week's edition of In Context, uh, maybe running a little late here, but we're wrapping it up. Don't forget, you can message us on Facebook, tweet us, email me at patrick at truthfm.uk, and I really would love to hear from you. But let me say, until next week... Um, let me wish you God's richest blessings and thank you. Thank you for being with us.